Well, as you know, Pastor Jeff is taking us in a series through the Ten Commandments, and I asked him when he asked me to fill in this Sunday, do, do you want me to continue with commandment number three? And he said, nope. <laughs> it's his series, and he wants to see it through, and I, I respect that and, and appreciate that. Uh, but as I was thinking about, about what to do, I was led uh, to something that's not so far removed, actually, uh, even though it's in some ways on the other end of the Bible, uh, and that's the Gospel of John chapter 7. And so I'd invite you to turn there with me. It will be up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up to John chapter 7. I'm going to read the first 13 verses and then skip down and read verses 37 to 39 as well. But I'd invite you, as, as you're able to stand as we open God's word, John 7, beginning with verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no. He deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. And then skipping down to verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. May God add his blessing to his word. You can be seated. You know, yesterday was a beautiful evening, wasn't it? And it, I, I think that our men's group can take some credit for that, because you know the forecast was for rain, but Saturday morning at our men's breakfast, we had the men's cookout, and so we were praying that, God, if you could just show some mercy with the weather and give us some you know, decent weather so that we'd be able to have the cookout, we'd appreciate it. And he followed through with one of the nicest evenings we've had in a long time. Uh, as we were there, we just had a real good evening, and so appreciate Dave Loftus and Jackie for opening their home to us, and 
as we were sitting there in the backyard uh, around Dave's fire pit, uh, I was thinking about the fact that one thing that Pastor Jeff and I like to rib each other about is camping. Now, he knows that I'm an Eagle Scout and that some of my fondest memories were out in creation with my dad and my friends, staying in tents, building fires, cooking over a camp stove, and just enjoying nature. And now Wilson is a scout, so I'm getting to enjoy it all over again from the other side as a parent. But I know, as many of you do, do that Pastor Jeff hates camping. It makes no sense to him at all, sleeping on the ground with bugs everywhere and how you can be hot and wet and cold all at the same time. And that's okay, he's, he's allowed to be wrong about some things. And I think my favorite time of year to camp, though, is in the fall. There's that crispness to the air, the, the coziness of snuggling down inside a warm sleeping bag, the comfort of sitting around a crackling fire on a cool evening, just like we were doing last night. And apparently God agrees with me because he gave Israel the Feast of Tabernacles or booths to celebrate every fall. It's one of the original three major uh, ritual festivals of the, of the Jewish ritual calendar. One of the times that all Jewish males were required to go to Jerusalem to uh, make a pilgrimage to the temple. It's still celebrated today by Jewish folks as Sukkot, which means booths. This year, it actually began this past Monday evening, and it continues through tomorrow evening. I thought it was appropriate for us to consider this festival today, not only because we happen to be in the middle of it, but also because we're in the middle of this series on the Ten Commandments. You see, the Feast of Booths was given to Israel so that they would remember their time in the wilderness. In Leviticus, God commanded his people to take a week, beginning on the 15th day of their seventh month, and to live in booths, temporary shelters made out of branches. These booths would appear everywhere in and around Jerusalem, on the city streets, in courtyards and squares, even on the flat roofs of houses or balconies, and they still do that in Jerusalem today. This was a joyous feast. It doubled as a celebration of the harvest whenever they got into the Promised Land. And at this feast, every seven years, the priests were supposed to read the entire law to the whole people. Men, women, children, resident aliens, everyone in the land, so that they and their children would know it and would follow it. Now, like most festivals, other rituals got added to it over the years. By Jesus' day, they would set up gigantic lamps in the temple courtyards. We're told that the light from them filled the whole city, and there was music and dancing in the temple throughout the night. And each day of the festival, except the final day, a golden pitcher of water was drawn from the pool of Siloam in the south of the city and carried in a great procession up to the temple with trumpets and shouting where that pitcher was poured out in front of the altar to remember God's provision of water in the wilderness. As we think about this festival, 
remembering God's provision and the harvest. Maybe you're like me, and what comes to your mind is Thanksgiving. Feasting, remembering how God provided in the wilderness, celebrating the bounty of the harvest, and as we saw in our reading today, enjoying political arguments around the dinner table. What we see in John chapter 7 is that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for this particular Feast of Booths. It was probably the last time that he celebrated this festival before his crucifixion and resurrection the following spring. Jesus intentionally takes time at this festival, I think, to highlight the ways that God's people have failed in many ways, but also to call for commitment and hope. I'd like to look at how he does so and what that means for us today. The first thing that occurs to me as I read John chapter 7 is that we can be close to Jesus but not know him. You know, the, the key question throughout this chapter and beyond just the section that we read is who is Jesus? Nobody seems to know, except, of course, Jesus. His brothers think he's trying to be a political figure, a political candidate. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret, they say. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. But Jesus is no political candidate. He's not after earthly power. And that's why he tells his brothers he's not going up to the festival with them. He's not going as part of a procession, a public entrance that might cause people to pull the palm branches out of their booths and bow down to him and hail him as king. That would come later, but now's not the time. So he goes secretly, only revealing himself partway through the feast. And the crowd, well, the crowd doesn't have any idea who Jesus is. They question whether he's good or whether he's a liar. They think he has a demon, only to turn around and wonder if he's really the Christ. Then some people suggest he might be the great prophet or the Messiah, but others disagree. After all, didn't you hear? He's from Galilee. What's clear is that neither his brothers nor the leaders believe in him. And I think that's part of what confuses the people. Shouldn't they be the ones most likely to believe in the Christ? Look at his brothers. They had known him since, he was born, since they were born. They grew up with him. They, of all people, should know his sinlessness. But just like back at the time of the patriarchs with Jacob's 11 sons, Jesus' brothers have no faith in their sibling. They might even intend to send him to Jerusalem to his death. I think just like with Joseph and his coat of many colors, Jesus' brothers might just have a little streak of jealousy going on. I mean, can you imagine growing up with the Son of God? I can picture Mary shaking her head every time one of her other kids acted up. Why can't you guys be more like Jesus? The Jewish leaders had spent their entire lives studying the law and the prophets that pointed to Jesus. But 
but they ignore God's word for their own priorities. At this time, the leaders were made up of two main groups. The, the Sadducees watered down the law in many ways to make it more relevant and palatable for their own day. They looked to political power as the answer to the nation's problems. And then there was the Pharisees. They took the law seriously, but they put a fence around it to keep people from getting too close to breaking it. And Jesus called them out time and time again for the way they made legalism an idol. They all see Jesus as a threat. He knows God's word without having gone to their schools, without quoting their rabbis, and he speaks as one with authority. Even the temple guards say, no one ever spoke the way this man does. A few chapters later, the Jewish council frets, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Notice what they say. Our temple. Our nation. Not God's. As so often happens, they are willing to distort reality and twist history to hold on to their perspective and their power. At the end of the chapter 7, they scoff, search scripture and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I suppose that's right if you are willing to ignore a few guys. Nahum, Jonah, Elijah, all of them were from Galilee. Sadly, the facts don't matter much of the time when power is at stake. Both Jesus' brothers and the Jewish leaders, even the crowd, are close to Jesus, but they don't know him or his father. They think they do. We know where this man is from, they say. And Jesus responds with sarcasm. Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. He tells them, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is just like the wilderness, isn't it? As we saw just last week, at Sinai, God had told Israel, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. But even after God had sent those plagues on Egypt, after he'd brought Israel through the sea and appeared with clouds and thunder and trumpets at the top of the mountain, the people showed that they didn't know him at all. Come, make us gods who will go before us, they say. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And so they made that golden calf and proclaimed, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In the same way, we, you and I, can be close to Jesus. We can visit his house. We can make small talk with him now and again. 
We can even think we're doing him favors or give him a birthday present every Christmas. We can even work for him, but not really know him. To know Jesus is to commit our lives to him. The Apostle John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Jesus said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Do you know him today? Or have you just grown up with him? Do you know him, or is he just a religious idea? Is he actually a threat to your own power and control? Or have you given him your life? Jesus at the Feast of Booths shows us that we can be close to him and not know him or we can commit our lives to him. Jesus also reminds us that when we're in the wilderness, we often blame somebody else for our wandering. I saw that in a summary of national polls over the past two weeks that 61% of the people interviewed thought that the United States was going in the wrong direction. That's the highest it's been since, well, most of last year. Certainly, most people in first century Israel would have felt that their nation was going in the wrong direction. They were under foreign occupation and oppression. They faced burdensome taxes and problematic government registration programs. They had corrupt and cruel leaders who were replaced by other corrupt and cruel leaders. They feared violent outbursts from political groups seeking to gain power and freedom. And they struggled with infighting among many religious groups who all claimed to follow the same God. At least we can be glad that's nothing like today. But what do the leaders and the people say? Jesus is deceiving the people. The Greek there says literally, he's causing the people to wander. He's leading the people in the wrong direction. But what has he done? He says, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Just like the law did, Jesus has reminded the people of their sin. In verse 16, he says to them, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. The law is good, but none of us keeps it. The law is good, but it can't make us righteous. Its purpose was to shine a spotlight on our sin, to show us our need for grace and mercy. Again, it's no accident that this is all taking place at the Feast of Booths. That feast was to remind Israel of God's provision in the wilderness, 
They were in the wilderness because God had saved them from slavery in Egypt. He led them with a pillar of cloud and fire. He provided for them along the way with miraculous gifts of water, quail, and manna. He gave them his law. But as we read the account in the pages of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what do we see? Time and time again, the people forget God and blame Moses. You've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger, they say to Moses. Uh, We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But they're forgetting the slavery. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? That was his own brother and sister, by the way. Finally, they say, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Those great lamps in the temple during the Feast of Booths were probably intended to recall the presence of God in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Time and again in the desert, even with that pillar of cloud and fire in front of them, the people forgot that it was God, not Moses, who was leading them. And they forgot again and again that their wandering wasn't because of Moses. And it wasn't because of God. Their wandering was because of sin. God led them through the wilderness, but they kept themselves there. Israel failed to trust God to lead them into the promised land. They rebelled on the border of the land and bowed down to their fear. So God sentenced them to 40 years in the wilderness until that whole generation had died out. You and I might find ourselves going through the wilderness for many reasons. I found, though, that usually when we wander, when we stay in the wilderness, it's because of sin. A lot of the time it's related to our own bad decisions, but not always. Remember, Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb, had all believed in God. They argued with Israel not to turn away in fear. They pleaded with God for mercy on the people, but they still wandered in the desert for 40 years with the rest of Israel. Sometimes, like Moses, we're in the wilderness because we've been faithful to God. And he calls us to serve others while we're there. When we find ourselves in the wilderness, our tendency is to blame other people or to blame God. Yet if we're willing, God wants to teach us something. We can grumble and whisper and blame others and blame God. Or like Moses, David, Hezekiah, Josiah, Daniel, Nehemiah, and so many others, we, we can get on our knees and we can pray. We can repent of our own sin. We can repent for the sin of our nation. 
we can forgive, and we can seek God. The wilderness reminds us that we can be close to Jesus without really knowing him. It reminds us that we can blame someone else for our wandering, or we can get on our knees. Finally, it reminds us that we dry up our faith when we stop relying on God. Remember that for seven days of the Feast of Booths, water was brought from the pool of Siloam and poured out in front of the altar in the temple. But on the eighth day, the last day of the feast, no water was poured out. Instead, they prayed for God to provide water. In the wilderness, God had miraculously provided water from the rock when he split it open. In the promised land, Israel was still dependent on God to provide them with the rain that they so desperately needed. And that's what the Feast of Booths was supposed to remind them of. But you know what happened? When they, when they got into the land, they saw that the Canaanites who lived there worshipped Baal, the storm god. They prayed to him for the rain, and they believed that they risked his anger and drought if they ignored him. So Israel began to worship Baal too. Because of this stubborn idolatry, having other gods before the Lord, the nation and temple were destroyed, and the people were sent into exile. And just a few years before the exile, as the nation was spiraling downward, the prophet Jeremiah was given this word from the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 2. The Lord gave me another message. He said, go and shout this message to Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago, how you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. In those days, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his children. All who harmed his people were declared guilty, and disaster fell on them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Listen to the word of the Lord, people of Jacob, all you families of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far from me? They worshipped worthless idols, only to become worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us safely out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and death, where no one lives or even travels. And when I brought you into a fruitful land to enjoy its bounty and goodness, you defiled my land and corrupted the possession I had promised you. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who taught my word ignored me. The rulers turned against me and the prophets spoke in the name of Baal, wasting their time on worthless idols. Therefore, I will bring my case against you, says the Lord. I will even bring charges against your children's children in the years to come. Go west and look in the land of Cyprus. Go east and search through the land of Kedar. Has anyone ever heard of anything as strange as this? Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they're not gods at all? 
Yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. During the 70 years that the nation was in exile, the prophet Ezekiel had a mysterious vision of a new temple. In that vision, he saw a trickle of water coming out of the door of the temple, the entrance to the holy place. The water flowed across the temple courtyard and out the gate to the east. Ezekiel went about a quarter mile and found that the water at that point was ankle deep. Another quarter mile and it was up to his knees. Three-fourths of a mile out and it was waist deep. And by the end of a mile, Ezekiel couldn't even swim across it. It was a river lined with trees that provided food all year round and whose leaves brought healing. He was told that this river flowed into the Dead Sea and made its water fresh causing it to teem with life. And on the eighth day of the Feast of Booths, the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood in the temple courts and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On that day when no water was poured out, when Israel cried out to God to fulfill his prophecy of sending living water, Jesus called out, Do you want that river of living water? Do you really want it? Come to me. Drink of the Holy Spirit, and he will flow from you. And now the Spirit has been given. Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And from the Spirit, that river of living water flows out of each of us. His grace is deeper than we can fathom. He provides nourishment and healing. He brings the dead to life. Jesus' brothers, the crowds, the Jewish leaders, they all went through the motions. They went up to the feasts. They enjoyed the ceremonies. But they didn't really remember. They had forgotten that they depended on God's mercy, on his power. They rejected the fountain of living water, and they dug cracked cisterns that couldn't hold any water at all. What about you this morning? Are you just going through the motions? Do you look like you're close to Jesus, but you don't 
really know him? Are you wandering in the wilderness and walking away from God? Is your faith dry today? Come to him. Believe in him. Commit your life to him. And drink. Let's pray. God, you know how much I need to hear this message this morning. God, we can be so close to you without really knowing you. We can wander without pursuing you. We can go dry because we are trying to dig our own wells and we're ignoring your living water. Spirit, come this morning. Meet us here. Do your work in hearts. There's nothing magical about these steps here at the front, but there is something important about taking steps of faith, stepping out when God is working. If he's speaking to you today, I just invite you to come, come down front. As Jesus said, come to me and drink. God, I thank you. Work in your people today. Work in me.